It would be great to keep your Bible open as we look at this passage together. Uh, Let me pray before we begin. Dear Lord, as we come to your word today, we pray that we'll be encouraged by the example of Peter and John. Uh, But Lord, more significantly, we pray that by your spirit, we'll be emboldened to proclaim the lordship of your son to the people who need salvation. Amen. If you are a Christian, uh, then there are so many situations and opportunities uh, to talk to people about Jesus. Uh, We all have uh, friends and family and neighbours. We have work colleagues. We have a brave new world of social media. Uh, Within our church family life, you know, we've got things like uh, church on Sunday morning. We've got toddler time, creative hands. Uh, For our young people, we've got cross-life kids and cross-life youth. But even with so many opportunities... Uh, it can feel pretty daunting uh, to stand up and talk to someone about what it means for you to be a Christian, uh, but perhaps even more challenging, suggesting that perhaps they also need to be a Christian, that they've actually got a need, not just a lifestyle preference, but a genuine need to know the God who created us and Jesus who saved us. Uh, Sometimes uh, we are confronted and intimidated uh, by the social pressure. We're we're afraid of how they will respond. Uh, Not necessarily so much about how they'll respond to Jesus, but how they'll respond to us. Uh, Because we don't want to be abused or ridiculed or trivialised, and we do want to be, you know, respected and liked. Uh, For some, uh, perhaps it's a fear of knowing what to say uh, and having the right words to say. Uh, For others, it it might be just that feeling that, you know, talking about religion or politics, for that matter, is just all very personal. And so it feels very intrusive uh, to start, you know, having such a personal conversation with someone, perhaps particularly if we don't know them that well. And so we need to feel that we've got to have a stronger connection before we can have a conversation. And so we bundle up all of those fears and imagined desired dire outcomes of how this is all going to go terribly wrong. And in that split second moment, we decide, well, now is really not the time for that type of conversation. And for some of us, uh, then comes the guilt. As we remember the words of Jesus or something similar, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man, will be ashamed of them when he comes in glory. Uh, There was an opportunity, we knew it, and we blew it. And I think the problem with guilt is it doesn't have a lot of power when it comes to changing behaviour. And avoiding guilt is hardly a compelling or inspiring motivation to speak. And so how do we move from a position of fear and excuses and guilt to a place of boldness? And hopefully, prayerfully, uh, there are some answers in the passage that we looked at today. 
So uh, today, uh, the passage we read is really the continuation of uh, what we read last week. Uh, So in the plot so far, uh, Peter and John, they were heading up to the temple to pray in the afternoon, and they come across a beggar uh, who is also been a a crippled for life. And so Peter then turns to him and says, "Uh, I don't have any silver or gold, but in the name of Jesus Christ, walk. And the man who's been crippled for life stands up and he goes, you know, walking and leaping and praising God as the song goes. And all the people were understandably astonished. And there's nothing like a crowd to draw a crowd. And as all these people gather together to see what's happened, Peter then stood up and tells them what's going on. And so the short version of our sermon last week, uh, it was really verse 15. Uh, You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And then from verse 18, But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. And completely no surprise whatsoever the religious establishment who were guardians of the temple and the guardians of Jewish orthodoxy were greatly disturbed, which I think is kind of a rather understated way of expressing it, Uh, but you can imagine just how unhappy they are that these men are standing up in the temple. And in particular, Luke singles out uh, one group within the religious establishment, which were the Sadducees. Uh, Most of the time, uh, when we think about uh, religious people in the New Testament, we think about Pharisees. Uh, But the Sadducees were sort of another faction. uh, And actually, within the religious establishment, were probably the more powerful group. And there were some big differences between the two. And in particular, uh, the Pharisees believed that after death, uh, there would be uh, heaven, eternal life. Uh, For the Sadducees, they believed, well, when you die, that's it. Uh, Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, there is no more. And so Peter and John, uh, they're arrested, uh, they're put in prison, and the next day they're brought before the Sanhedrin, which is sort of the centre of the religious and political power for Israel. So they don't have a separation of church and state, it's all in together. And they're they're a province of the Roman Empire, but within reason, they're given the power and the authority to self-rule. So from Rome's perspective, as long as there is peace and people keep paying their taxes, they're not too fast what happens. And the burning question uh, for those in the Sanhedrin is in verse 7. By what power... Or what name did you do this? So no one's denying what has happened, that this is a miracle, that this crippled man uh, who has never been able to walk his entire life, who is known to the people of the temple, uh, that this man has been healed. And so Peter and John are now standing to give an account. So they're surrounded by uh, 70-odd of the most powerful, influential learned people in Jerusalem. And here they are, standing up to speak and talk about Jesus. 
I think if, if that was us, that's probably about as intimidating as it gets, surely. You know, we, we just feel so inadequate for the task. Uh, but thankfully, they don't stand up alone. So before Jesus was crucified, he told the disciples what the future was going to hold for them. So going back into the book of Luke, they'll hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and they'll be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your minds not to worry before, beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. And that's exactly what's happening now. Uh, as they stand up to speak, God's Holy Spirit is with them. And I think we see the Spirit uh, doing three things. Uh, firstly, it convicts. So, you know, a couple of months earlier, uh, Peter would not believe Jesus when he was told that he was going to go to the cross, die, and three days later rise again from the dead. Peter heard those words and he goes, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, uh, Peter is sitting there around a fire in the forecourt and he denies Jesus three times. On the night of the resurrection, uh, he's upstairs in this home behind a locked door for fear of what the Jewish establishment are going to do next. And yet here he is now, standing up, proclaiming the lordship of Jesus with absolute clarity and conviction. He understands who Jesus is and what's at stake. I think the second thing we see is the Spirit gives the apostles an unshakable commitment to Christ. Uh, it's not simply a commitment to stand up and talk about Christ. It's a commitment to who Christ is. That Jesus is their Lord and Saviour. And they are committed to living a life that honours him. And that's true in every aspect of their life. And it's true as they want to stand up and proclaim Christ. So we've got conviction, we've got commitment and I think the third thing the Spirit gives is compassion. People need to hear about Jesus because they need to be saved. And so I think the challenge for us is, you know, do we love people enough that we are willing to be hated by those people for the sake of their salvation? Certainly for Peter that risk is worth it. That he cannot help but stand up and speak about Jesus. And his message is as simple as it is confronting and for, for those Jewish people sitting there, offensive. So verse 10, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. The stone your builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. So the cornerstone was the, the first rock that's placed 
in a building. And from that uh, come all the other uh, measurements as they you know, build this structure around it. So it's the single most important stone in the whole structure. And Peter is standing up and he's saying, you missed it. So he's quoting from Psalm 118, which is talking about how the nations rage against the lordship of God. But in this context, ironically, it's now Israel who stand against the lordship of Jesus. Yeah, someone in our Connect group uh, put it beautifully during the week uh, when they said, you know, these guys, the religious establishment, have bought Peter and John uh, to be on trial. But in fact, Peter's turned this whole thing around, uh, that they're now on trial. Uh, as the leaders of Israel, they have failed to listen to the word of God and they failed to see the Messiah coming. And there's a lot at stake. So verse 12, this is perhaps the verse of this passage. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So here is a nation that's been waiting for salvation for a long time, but now that it's come, they've completely missed it. And so in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system dealt with sin and their relationship with God. So in terms of their expectations, when, when they hear salvation, they're thinking in terms of restoring Israel to its former glory. So let's get rid of the Romans. Uh, let's reclaim the land that was lost uh, to the north uh, of the nation. And let's get back to being the land flowing with milk and honey, as God promised in the Old Testament. A land of blessing and a land of prosperity. And for the pious religious leaders, uh, it would have been, if people stop sinning, then God will start blessing and saving. And that saving is going to happen through the Messiah. What they didn't expect is for the Messiah to come and deal with sin. So the scriptures pointed to a Messiah who was going to be a sin bearer and a sin saviour, but they just didn't see it. So, for example, Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. You know, Peter sees it, and he's unequivocally clear about what Jesus has come to do. And it's bigger than just nationalistic aspirations. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. You know, people often accuse Christians of being arrogant for suggesting or claiming there is only one way to God. Uh, and there's no doubt that we do need to speak from a position of humility. Uh, you know, we are just uh, one beggar telling another beggar how to find a loaf of bread. You know, there's nothing special about any of us. But there is something special 
about Jesus and the gospel. Uh, and there's nothing arrogant in suggesting there is only one way if that is actually true. Now, they might disagree on what is true, but we're not coming from a position of arrogance. We're coming from a position of people who recognise that we need to be saved and recognise that God, through his son Jesus, offers salvation. But for the members of the Sanhedrin, uh, they are left both outraged and ambivalent about what to do next. So these uneducated men are speaking with conviction and clarity and arguing from scripture, and that makes it difficult to ignore uh, or to simply write off as sort of the nutter fringe. Uh, Worse still, we've got this crippled man uh, who's walking around uh, and somewhat frustratingly showing what God has done in the name of Jesus Christ. And so they can't deny it, but at the same time they're completely unwilling to accept Jesus as the Messiah and they refuse to believe he's risen from the dead. So what do they do? And they decide to really do nothing with the hope that you know, it'll just burn itself out. So they go back to Peter and John and they give them a good solid talking to. <laughs> and that has absolutely none of the desired impact. So verse 18, then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. So their conviction and their commitment and their compassion are simply greater than their fear. You know, we're not all gifted preachers or teachers or speakers, but we do all have a role to stand up and proclaim Christ. Uh, Not just in our example, uh, I think that's a safer space, certainly it's not less than our example, but also in our words, uh, knowing that we don't do it alone, that we do have God's Spirit with us. And those words must include acknowledging Jesus as the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins. And they must include a call to repent and to live in obedience to him. And again, as we go back to the Sanhedrin, when Peter and John refuse, then what do they do? Well, they give them another good talking to, uh, a few more threats, and they let them go. And so Peter and John, they go back to the Christians, they go back to their family and their community, and their first reaction is to pray and to praise. And this is what they pray, verse 25. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. It's a quote from Psalm 2, and once again, it was about the nations, but they can see how David was actually looking forward to what is happening now. And what happened with Pontius Pilate and Herod and the crowd screaming for Jesus to be crucified, all of that 
is really no great surprise. And it all happens according to God's purpose and will. So verse 28, they did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. You know, when Jesus stood up amongst his disciples and said, this is my future, I'm going to die, be buried and rise again, it wasn't just guessing. Uh, He came right from the start, from the moment he was born, he was coming for the specific reason to die on the cross for our sin. God is in control right from the beginning. So they praise God and they pray to God, but look at what they pray. They don't pray for relief. They don't pray, you know, dear Lord, take away all this this persecution because it's just so hard. What they pray for is boldness. You know, as Christians, uh, we used to be labelled do-gooders. Uh, we could kind of handle that. You know, we're on the sort of you know, daggy end of things, but that's okay. Uh, these days, uh, we're starting to be labelled as dangerous. If they're not careful, we'll actually become vaguely cool. But dangerous things need to be exposed and destroyed, or at very least, contained. And so we're starting to feel this groundswell opposition in the name of inclusivity and equality and tolerance. And it certainly feels like they have all the power. Yeah, and as we see our freedoms and perhaps our rights threatened, yeah, sometimes we can wonder, you know, where is God in this whole situation? Uh, so our natural reaction is to you know, be outraged and defensive and to cry foul. And we pray that God might continue to allow us to have freedom of religion and freedom of speech and freedom of worship. But if we're going to follow the example of the earliest Christians, then our first prayer should actually be for boldness, that we might fearlessly stand firm for Christ, uh, that we might live uncompromising lives even when it comes at significant personal cost. And we might continue to proclaim the Lordship of Christ with an unflinching boldness. You know, we don't know what God has planned for our circumstances. Uh, you know, there might be a season where it does get a lot easier. Uh, I suspect uh, it could get a whole lot harder. But our first prayer is for boldness. And let me say right from the start that I can't do that. I just don't have the emotional fortitude to endure that sort of uh, persecution and contempt. I can't even imagine what it's like for Christians overseas who are literally given the option of stand up for Christ uh, and die or recant. In my own strength, uh, I'm like Peter in the courtyard. Uh, But thankfully, I'm not a Christian in my own strength. Uh, that we have been given God's spirit. You know, so when we look at ourselves uh, as Christians, our life is characterised by weakness and dependence, all those words that our culture hates. And yet, our dependence is on the Holy Spirit of God. 
So it's through the Spirit we come to recognize Jesus as Lord. It's God's Spirit who is shaping us and molding us to be more like Christ. It's God's Spirit who gives us words to speak. And it's God's Spirit who gives us strength when we know we are weak. If we keep looking for our our identity in other people, then I suspect we won't tell anyone about Jesus. Uh, They may well thank us for saving their life, literally, uh, or they might turn around and hate us, and we're just not sure which way this is all going to pan out, so we just can't risk it. But if our identity is in Christ, then telling other people becomes infinitely more compelling. Our courage becomes an act of worship. And we move from being motivated by self-preservation to being motivated by conviction and a commitment and a compassion for the people around us. And ultimately, for a desire to see God glorified. So let's pray that that is true for us. Amen. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we do thank you for your Holy Spirit. As we look at the example of Peter and John, as we think about what it means for us to stand up in the world, we thank you that we do not do it alone, uh, that you are with us uh, through your Spirit, giving us boldness, giving us words to speak. And so, Lord, help us to have the courage of our convictions that we might stand up and be salt and light in the world. Amen.